Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. This week, our guest is Max Henry. Max Henry is the author of The Parkour Roadmap, and he's a veteran of the parkour scene. He's traveled all over the country and all over the world and done extensive stunt work and worked at a very high level within parkour. He's a very thoughtful guy. I was initially interested in touching base with him also because he's taken interest in the philosophical side of parkour and understanding um, the hero's journey and how that applies to to our practice within parkour. So I thought that'd make grounds for a very interesting conversation. This turned out to be a really fun conversation. I dug deep into kind of uh, Max's personal physical practice and how he builds himself up and prepares for challenges. And I think if you are interested in how high level parkour is practiced and how people build up for that practice, this is gonna be a really fantastic interview. Max is a great person to talk to and I think you guys will enjoy it. So without further ado, Max Henry. So Max, welcome on the Evolve Move Play podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So I've followed you for a, a while. You're obviously one of the very talented athletes in the parkour community. We've also taken an interest in coaching and in understanding a method and different things connected to parkour. You've written a book about parkour, which um, we didn't have time for me to read before we got on this podcast, but I figured that'd be a good place to start. Like what, what inspired you to write a book and, and kind of what did you want to share with the community through that book? Yeah, well, it's actually really interesting to read it now anyway, since it came out in 2016 yeah. and in the intervening like year and a half directly after it was released, there were a ton of major uh, kind of post pubescent changes for the parkour community <laughs> with big and everything. So yeah. uh, it's been volume two kind of in the works while everything sorts itself out. But uh, my main motivation is when I started, I was, pretty much the only person in my area. Uh, I grew up on Long Island outside of New York City, and I was probably the youngest one in the community at the time when I started. So I didn't have a ton of access to pop in and out of the New York City community early on. And for me, forums were essentially my tutor. I just went through a ton of videos and, you know, I remember popping on the .NET forums and getting to watch like, Chris Roat, Blaine, having conversations with um, Daniel Labaca and a lot of the original free run guys and mm -hmm. kind of getting to watch their videos, hear their perspective. And I know a lot of my contemporaries who learn the same way. And now what kind of happened after the forums died out and Facebook took over is that information was, it was still there, but it was really, really hard to access. And I realized that kind of the subsequent generation of practitioners were interested in having access to a lot of the stuff that I just 
had kind of absorbed and then memorized where it was because I grew up with it. But for them to find it was like this massive treasure hunt. Uh, right. And if they were lucky, they'd be able to locate like 15 or 20%. So the name of the book is the parkour roadmap. Mm-hmm. And I called it that because I wanted to just kind of connect newer practitioners with a lot of the, I guess the like heritage um, that parkour had developed in the early 2000s and give them a way to navigate that online world because now it's really, really tough to do when you grow up absorbing parkour through Instagram and Facebook. Uh, It's just hard to find a place to start. So that was the general idea was to, to just kind of create this roadmap that compiled all of these great old resources and then connected them to practitioners who were starting now and then also tied in uh, some of the most relevant and effective uh, improvements that we've made to training and coaching and the way that we look at parkour in the last decade. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. I actually been thinking about this recently because um, if you follow Jimmy the Giant on YouTube, mm-hmm. right? so you made that that video about how Instagram almost killed parkour, right? And how parkour culture was really spread through YouTube and YouTube was really um, a great host for us and, and kind of uh, was a viral vector for the parkour, for parkour and its culture. And even though parkour videos are very popular on Instagram, uh, it's not, it's not communicating that it's a something that you can do or what that culture is, or how to get connected in the same way. I thought it was a really compelling argument, but what I thought was missed was the role of the web forum and how, uh, how when Facebook and Twitter essentially took the role or basically consumed all the audience of the old web forums, um, we, had lost, uh, we had lost this really incredible free resource for anyone who wanted to get started. It used to be that you could Google parkour and end up on APK or end up on parkour.net or end up on Urban Falifa, whatever. And there would be a dedicated community that you had live feedback from. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, over time we had generated like incredible community resources for, for people to come in. Like here's guidelines to getting strength trained. Here's guidelines to learning specific skills that would just be sticky to the top of these forums. Yeah. I've been thinking about think that. that- the fact that parkour has been trending down, you know, um, in, in popularity, at least as far as practitioners go. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty interesting. So I'm curious, um, let's, let's, uh, ask this question then, like if parkour is, 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 is sort of getting hurt by the modern landscape what do you think that we can do to do a better job of kind of generating a community? Like, do you, you have a YouTube channel, correct? Do you update it anymore? Yeah. Time to time. I'm not big on the vlog format. Um, and kind of Instagram is, is my training diary at this point, but I do save YouTube for like one or two annual uploads. And how, what's the trend line for your, uh, your views per video over time. Yeah, definitely decreased dramatically Hmm. uh, for sure. Um, I, so I, I think that's a great question to ask. One thing that I always like to point out to people too is um, 
whenever, and I know Kieran, Jimmy the Giant in his videos was talking about how parkour is trending down in all of these sectors when you look at Google analysis or YouTube searches. Uh, and I do also like to point out that that's partially probably a function of just people who know what parkour is don't have to search parkour, um, which a lot of spikes in parkour are just people being exposed to the word for the first time, probably trying to find out more about it. When you've kind of found out enough about it, that same demo is not going to continue to search it. So that kind of stuff I think is really, really good to kind of have in your back pocket. But I also think it's really easy to overplay when there are these kind of statistics yeah. that the parkour trending downward, and especially I have a degree in math and did a good amount of statistical analysis. So I look at that and I'm like, all right, guys, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of factors that go into it. Um, I think what you said about forums, though, is a great place to start for community building. Um, in, I mean, this also just culturally, the kind of lack of emphasis or maybe lack of respect for expertise that has become kind of more common. I think that was a thing that the forums had, you know, you had moderators who were able to kind of separate the nonsense advice from the people who were backing up their advice with facts or research or decades of experience. Um, and that kind of went out the window with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram because there's always been a tendency in parkour, I think, to hero worship and to attribute maybe more knowledge to athletes that have a really, really high skill level uh, mm -hmm. than they necessarily have in other fields or other domains. So I'm sure you know there are tons of athletes who are amazingly talented but are horrible coaches yeah. because that's not where they put their time into. Um, and yet they can fill a workshop immediately because people you know, conflate those two things. Uh, with forums and all of those old sticky threads, it's a lot I think it was great to be able to see the history and the progression of these ideas laid out and be able to kind of put the most vetted ones on a pedestal, which is something that's hard to do with social media or YouTube. Um, as communities, I think it's, it's cool to have local resources. And I think what Jimmy the Giant's doing right now is a great way to kind of combine the ideas of the forum which were let's elevate maybe some of the most vital resources and make them really accessible for the community uh with the kind of like easily digestible format that youtube is promoting right now um through vlogs so he's kind of i think doing a really good job of consolidating a lot of that information and then giving people similar to what i tried to do with the book giving people kind of little links and routes to explore more if they want to find out more uh, and I think that, yeah, that's a, a great starting place. Um, I mean, with my book, again, that was one of the goals I had was like, what can I do to consolidate this information just to, to kind of have somebody that's editing it and, you know, putting all of it into one place, not necessarily force feeding it to somebody or, or making selections on what people should look at, um, but just kind of winnowing down the different valid viewpoints and ending up with like, Hey, here's like six viewpoints on how to improve your precision from all of these different practitioners. I have a preference, but here's links to explore all of them. You can kind of pick and choose as you go. Uh, the same way that, you know, people do with like strength training, getting into that. It's really tough as you know, to 
find kind of relevant information at first unless you have a background in research or you have a, a friend that will help you start out so yeah so you so basically with your book you it sounds like you essentially went through and said here was the kind of best information that was available and here's some different perspectives and maybe even some different thinkers who who uh who you highlighted um is that is that true as far as the format yeah yeah, I kind of looked at myself as a, just a curator of parkour knowledge. And I think I definitely added certain things in um, just because I felt like there were gaps where I had at the time enough knowledge in the subject to feel like my voice was as relevant as anybody else's that would contribute. Uh, and so in, I mean, one example would be, and you've done a lot of research into track and field training as well, uh, you know, athletes who want to improve their strides and they're like okay i'm gonna like just squat and deadlift really heavy yeah, yeah and you look at track and field athletes who are doing like single leg really partial range of motion mm-hmm. <laughs> explosive loading stuff and that was not an area that anybody in the parkour community at the time had written extensively about so that was something where i felt okay i can kind of fill this gap in and at least I know my information will be as relevant as anybody else's. Um, but yeah. generally it was just kind of a, an attempt to curate and um, present sort of like a European slash generally international opinion of parkour, which often kind of tends to differ a little bit from the North American, like especially like US oriented view of training. And I kind of tried to get both of those perspectives. Uh, in a lot of situations and, and give athletes who are interested the chance to kind of see both sides. So how do you see the European perspective as different from the American perspective? Uh, there's a, it depends on kind of the topic, but I mean, you know, kind of starting, I started in 2007, the beginning of 2007, which yeah. wasn't super early, but at the time, then if you were not a very acro oriented athlete, you definitely, kind of would gravitate, I think, towards like the English and uh, different European styles because they were really pushing the, the sort of like technical parkour game at, the, at that time. And the American community, I remember very vividly, was kind of ridiculed by the rest of the world for not maybe pursuing the same level of kind of like technical mastery that the Europeans had started to develop. Uh, a lot of which was just because we got started later on and didn't yeah. start parkour in 2001 we started in 2005 or 6 so there's a lag but um i think that because of that right there are certain things where the us has excelled i think like gym culture um the us has been a definitely a primary uh driving factor in developing better gyms and improving gym design also competition formatting with spl and speed courses all of that essentially came out of just really two two or three groups one of whom being obviously visions in the Midwest with the summit uh and then apex and and spl kind of building on that format um so in those situations the u.s really i think was open to change that europe was kind of close to but the european community i think really looked at training from a kind of philosophical perspective uh, and a technical perspective differently and dove a little bit more into 
to that side of things. So kind of pursuing the, the sort of rabbit hole of just pure technical training all the way down. And I think that, uh, yeah, that, that gives you a different perspective than somebody in the U S who maybe comes from a competitive traditional sports background, who's a little bit more open to sports science and has access to good resources in that area. Who's a little bit more open to kind of the benefits that competitive format could have for parkour training. And now I think they've merged a lot more than even they had in 2016, but, um, the early 2010s for sure. I remember feeling when I would go to Europe and, and train and travel versus traveling around the U S and seeing the high level athletes. I was like, you guys are both amazing, but there, there is kind of a cultural, cultural divide there a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I guess as, as all the, the tours and everything and competitions have become more international, I imagine this, the styles are more cross pollinated, but you have these little, you know, you have a Russian style. So many of the Russian guys seem to have some kind of b-boy background or some kind of capoeira background that then, you know, even if they don't, they've trained with people who do. And you can just mm -hmm. see it, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's really cool. I love that regional styles are still a thing. Uh, I think that's been been always really fun to watch. And yeah, uh, competition can definitely, as like a competition style develops, that can can start to kind of slack off a little bit because athletes obviously want to train toward whatever's being rewarded uh, in the event that they're, they're trying to succeed in. But yeah, it's really cool. Um, same thing with like video styles that you're seeing now. There's like this massive, massive rush of the younger athletes making kind of like skate part style videos that are 15 or 20 minutes long, which has been really cool yeah. to see. Wow. It goes back to YouTube, right? If you want YouTube to pay attention to your video, it's got to be 10 minutes longer or longer, which, which drives me crazy personally, because a lot of it is basically just the footage that you would have put into a three minute, like all killer edit, but stretched out over 15 minutes of you chatting with your friends and showing outtakes. And <laughs> like, I'll watch yeah. some, you know, I'll watch a store video or a Don Tomasi video. And I'm just fast forwarding until I see a, a, a few good lines and watching them and, and yeah. you know, just like scrolling through. And it feels like it, it's really tra tragic to me that, that, that there's no place for the traditional three minute parkour edit. There's nowhere online where you can, you can, uh, you can put those up and get a good audience for it. And it, it, I don't think it's because people wouldn't be interested in watching that anymore. It's because the, the algorithms of the platforms that we have specifically punish that, which I also think is really interesting because like parkour was a big part of YouTube's early success. Like that three minute parkour edit was one of the things that drove that platform. And now they've just completely killed it. Yeah. That um, bugs me. No, I miss, I miss that too. I, I definitely think one positive that could come out of it is it's really hard to market a three minute video. If you're an adult athlete who needs to pay the bills and you want to, you know, get your team sponsored where it's, it's easier to kind of have like a 20 minute piece and, and put it out on Vimeo or, you know, convince a company potentially to pay for that. And you look at like skate parts and ski and snowboarding films and climbing films and, you know, it seems at least from the outside looking in that the the bigger sponsorship money is in those longer projects. Um, and I'm hoping that we're going, we're kind of almost through the growing pains where everybody had to like 
we all had this like training in a very specific type of video. And then there were four or five years where everybody was making really horrible vlogs, trying to kind of figure out the format. And now with store as an example, even some of their more boring vlogs, if I'm stretching or eating breakfast, I can get through the whole thing. I don't necessarily like the whole thing, yeah, but yeah. there are ones where I feel like they really hit the nail on the head and they kind of, it feels like you're out training with them for the day, which is cool. Uh, I don't know that we'll ever get to the point where everyone is like that when they're, you know, having to create one or two videos, <laughs> a week. but it's, uh, improved a lot over the last two years. I agree. And Modus has put out some nice vlogs recently too. Um, kind of, kind of showcasing that same, like really getting almost a, cin a, a cinematic level with the vlogging. Whereas like right before they killed, <laughs> right before YouTube killed the three minute video, like the level of filming that was going into the three minute videos was insane. Uh, yeah. Oh, I know. I mean, storm, I will like rewatch everything storms posted in the last like, <laughs> two or three years and it's so after they went through their vlogs and went back to making kind of like traditional parkour edits just so good like their storm madrid video yeah fantastic uh like, and i mean hopefully we get to the point where we can just make a 20 minute video that is that level of quality um and people can just kind of sit on clips for two or three months and put together a massive project because they're being paid for it and not you know, having to kind of emphasize the quantity side, but yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I'm back for a step. Like my work, you know, has gone from like, you know, so early adopter parkour, 2005, um, co-founded the first parkour gym on the West coast. I think it was fourth. It was what it was, uh, primal, uh, monkey vault apex, and then PKV basically. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think there were gyms outside of the North America at that point either. So it was like fourth in the world. Uh, and you know, you're talking about how the, the North American community in many ways was very open to sports science, right. And to a competitive model early on, like we, we, co we, you know, I think the apex international jam in 2009 was the first competitive format that I saw. Mm -hmm. And then Was that was that wait i'm trying to think i think that was actually 2008 2008 was uh that one and then um then we opened our gym in uh no no sorry that was 2009 summer of 2009 we opened our gym in october and we ran our first competition in january i think and then mm -hmm. we had uh i think we had, we organized the first big competition maybe that summer i remember the first one that that went like I think it was 2011 where we had the first like gasworks comp, um, yeah. which went really viral. I still miss the fact that like we were the only, the only, the only group that I've seen really organize a good one on the street as opposed to yeah. in gyms. Yeah. No, I remember when that video came out and I was so bummed because it was only, there was like one or two summits and then it, yeah. Yeah. So I, petered out, yeah, cause I left in 2013 and mm -hmm. the, the, the drive to make that happen was not there in the rest of the organization. So, so anyways, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but as I've gone 
through my work for, you know, into all move play and everything I've done with that, I've gone to a very philosophical focus, right? It's really all about meaning and how people can kind of get that, uh, get meaning from their practice. And what I've discovered is it seems like a lot of what I've done in many ways parallels uh, what that early kind of French mentality was, but, you know, I think with a, a greater degree of sophistication and an articulation of it, but fundamentally the spirit is kind of the same is what it feels like. Um, but I think that, you know, we were playing a game of telephone, right? Like France to England, England to the United States. And we had very limited kind of access to, uh, you know, like the French, like Stéphane Vigrou and Chabelle and, uh, and these guys who now, you know, like I sent Laurent an email this morning. Um, they weren't available to us back in 2007. So we're yeah. trying to, we're trying to, <laughs> it was like Jurassic Park, right? So <laughs> we got the DNA of, 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 uh, of, uh, of French park, original park board. France. <laughs> But there were there were all these holes in it because it it wasn't communicated. So we were like plugging in, you know, <laughs> uh, plugging in frog DNA from the strength and conditioning world and the sports world is what it seems like in some ways. But I think that yeah. it gave the you know there are certain things about that that gave us an advantage. Like you know you know you mentioned Chris Roat and I remember having pretty intense debates with him about strength and conditioning where he was just not into it at all. You yeah, know? and now now he's all about it right mm -hmm. yeah when he changed that up i definitely remember he was one of the biggest proponents of of just body weight being the way to go and qming your way in, <laughs> into valhalla and then uh when he finally kind of adopted i think he also it was just like really just basic like he'd read like ripto or yep. something like that and then was just like oh yeah just like five by five that's all you need to get strong forever and it was like a, a light on moment for a lot of people who yeah. definitely invested in that body weight only lifestyle. So, so go back to your comment about, okay, you know, five by five squats and deadlifts, overhead press, bench press is not how elite jumping athletes train in yeah. other sports. But that was essentially what, what, we adopted early on in the parkour community. Like I, I was straight ripito, right? Yeah. And Justin Sweeney, you know Justin, right? Yeah. So Justin Sweeney, who went on to be one of the best parkour speed athletes in North America, right? When he came to start, when he started training with me, he uh, was like 130 pounds at 5'11", right? He graduated high school at 118 pounds, skinny, right? Like unhealthy guy. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think he had like an eight foot four broad jump and like a 22 inch uh, vertical jump right when he came to start training with me and yeah. and we put him on like half a gallon of milk a day couldn't do the full gallon right raw milk we had him on Ripito's program and at the end of it he was 165 pounds he had like a nine foot four inch broad jump and uh you know 27 inch vertical and then eventually he's like jumping over 10 feet and you know, 35 inch vertical, something like that, uh, mm -hmm. as his, as his pro career progresses. Um, but you know, we made huge, a huge change in him as an athlete. And that was, you know, that was the genesis of who he became in a lot of ways. Um, but over time I noticed like not all athletes could handle like a Ripito program on top of, of parkour. Right. 
And to yeah. take a guy who's, who, who's underweight and have him gain a massive amount of weight is great. But for an athlete like myself, who's naturally over 200 pounds in an anti-gravity sport, like power build, uh, powerlifting style uh, movements, just, you know, powerlifting style training isn't necessarily very optimized. So, I, so it seems to me that kind of at the, the point that the forums were, were basically exhausted. It, it seems to me that around 2013, 2012, maybe all the experienced guys had gone pro had like become coaches were won money for their time. were you know, looking at starting families, like we didn't want to just give away our time on forums anymore. And we were tired of answering the same questions for everybody who came in. I was like, okay. Yeah. And, and answering the same arguments, right? It's like, you know, yep. some noob would show up and tell you about why you should only do body weight training. <laughs> <laughs> I've had this argument like 300 times in the last five years. I'm not going to have it again. Yeah. But, uh, but it seems like that was a pretty, it was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty unsophisticated model, right? We realized that strength and conditioning was potentially useful. Um, but we were relying on a couple sources, you know, it was mm -hmm. West side for skinny bastards. If you're following Renee, it was uh, Ripito. If you're following me, it was maybe some Olympic lifting, you know, CrossFit. Yeah. Um, and then it was like, well, we just stopped talking about it. Right. And then there was like Stephen Lowe and the, and the, and the yeah. gymnastic style stuff. So I'm curious where you see the level of sophistication on that with the athletes that you're training with now, right? Like you, yeah. you know, I, I imagine that you are regularly kind of traveling around much more than I am and training with other elite level parkour athletes and has the death of the, of the forum sort of stalled the community's growth or, or are you seeing a consistent growth in sophistication of strength and conditioning across the industry? Uh, man, it's tough. I would not, I would not jump to say that it's become significantly more, uh, sophisticated. I think it's, it's always a problem of kind of distribution, like the, the funnel of information, you know, always kind of gets tightest where you have the, the people who are knowledgeable and then you have their audience and how they're, how they're getting that information out there. So for the last three years, I've had a really good friend of mine named Andreas Luzardo do my programming okay. um, because I was doing a lot of research and I was living in my van for two and a half years and training five or six times a week and then trying to lift two or three times a week on top of that to kind of just maintain and improve power. And uh, Andreas is a professional trainer down in Miami. He has done a ton of research into different uh, kind of approaches to strength training. I think his main background and emphasis that now he leans toward is kind of Olympic style. Uh, that was at least when he started, he was kind of Olympic. very heavy into Olympic lifting. He's uh, certified for Olympic lifting coach. Um, he's got a ton of certifications that I do not remember any of them, but um, he's been the one that, basically helped answer my questions for a long time and kind of guide what resources I was looking into. And I got to the point where I was like, you know, I'd rather just kind of offload this onto you and make sure that 
we're communicating about what I want um, in the last two or three years as kind of seems like the general consensus in the, in the strength training world has been to move for power athletes more toward a lot of like unilateral partial range of motion stuff, um, not fatiguing out the nervous system as much. He has moved me in that direction as well, uh, which has been really effective. At the same time, I've noticed with other athletes that I follow, they're picking up programming from parkour athletes who were kind of at the level of sophistication that a lot of us were at in 2012 or 2013, where, you know, they've read maybe like a little bit of Rikoshansky and then they've read some other kind of manual. Again, there are like probably two or three sources that they're drawing from, and then they sort of combine it into a clustered approach that may not necessarily have benefits for everybody but since most of their clients probably have never done any weight training program they're going to get novice gains for the first three months and be stoked and then everybody will see that they got gains and they hop on that train as well uh, and when you have kind of higher level athletes that are more more renowned in the community you sort of get that conflation of this person can jump far with this person knows how to train other people to jump far. Yeah. Uh, and I think that combined with sort of a general knowledge of strength programming, but a dangerous <laughs> amount of general knowledge where you're very confident in how much, you know, without having done the research to kind of realize that there are much deeper levels. I think that kind of has spread. Um, the good thing is I think it's, it's kind of exposed more people to a base level of, of strength and conditioning, which is good, especially for a lot of the kind of young teenage athletes, because at least they're building some strength and kind of getting into the habit of making mobility and strength training part of their training regimen early on. Um, I do think there are a couple athletes. So my coach Andreas is somebody who I really respect. Um, he also has worked with a couple other athletes. I mean, I know, um, I don't know if you know Yuho, Kusasari from Finland. His Instagram is uh, Yuhoku. He's like an osteopath and has been doing like strength programming in Finland for a couple different sports for the last four years, uh, along with a couple other Finnish athletes who work with like the Finnish national hockey team and things like that. So they have, they're another group that I kind of talked to pretty early on and they were at the kind of cutting edge of, of sports training in Finland. And since they're working with a, a professional sports group, there's a lot more incentive there to dabble in different methods. If what you're seeing for a highly trained athlete isn't immediately working. Yeah. Um, so I think that their, their feedback mechanism was really effective uh, and they had incentive to learn quickly. So uh, the Finnish parkour community was another one that, that I saw. And when I have traveled there, they're like base athlete is proficient technically in like all of their Olympic lifts. They generally have like incredible uh, like end range strength. Their general mobility is really, really high. They're also like really good at just moving around with kind of like weird things like clubs and kettlebells. Like they're just kind of like mm. neural patterns are pretty finely tuned for any type of activity um, because their coaches are like having them start with, yeah, like kind of technical unilateral, either like kettlebell movements or things when they're like 14 or 15, and then 
they're progressing it from there uh, and getting more and more into, you know, different types of training that suit the, the style of parkour that they want as they get older. But yeah, I think that that's kind of like the two areas where I've seen a lot of growth. And then I think I've seen some stagnation uh, with other parts of the community where it's like people who are pretty knowledgeable, probably I would put them where I am uh, in terms of knowledge for strength and conditioning. But, you know, there's a reason that I'm paying Andreas to do my programming yeah. and I'm not reaching out to a ton of people to program. I'm like, sure, I could help someone who has, you know, maybe like a beginner or intermediate level of experience with lifting. But if you're a parkour athlete who's been training for 11 years and you want like a really, really fine tuned program that will help you at that point. Um, I like don't necessarily feel confident that I would want to put a product out there with my name on it. And I think there are athletes who are like probably at around my level of expertise that That are are just putting it out there and and not necessarily again, getting like great feedback. So they're, they think that they're doing a great job and maybe they are. And I, I don't like necessarily have any issue with what they're doing. I just think that there are athletes in the parkour community who are incredibly knowledgeable about sports science that maybe are not uh, the ones that people are approaching for their information. So yeah, we have a problem with, with demonstration of expertise, right? The, 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 the visual aspect is going to be the aspect of the medium that's going to, uh, to dominate, you know, this was always my frustration, right? I was ahead of the curve um, on the the coaching end of of the thing, but you know, I was never quite impressive enough of an athlete to generate a ton of attention purely off of the the physical. And so, you know, I'd have people who I was working beside who, you know, honestly didn't know very much at all about training, um, but who were spectacularly physically talented, and people were. Uh, incredibly engaged, you know, um, one of the yeah. best parkour athletes in the world taught a seminar at uh, Parkour Visions, and it was honestly one of the worst things I've ever seen. <laughs> I won't name names, Not surprised, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but it was just the, the level of just general competence, not only in the material that was taught, but just like functional things about keeping people safe and knowing how to manage a room or knowing how to like distribute time uh, were utterly uh, unattended to. Yeah. So, so that's out there and it's very hard for people to, when you don't know, you don't know. And we, you know, without like, even, even when the forums were very popular, it was, it was a relatively small section of the community that was getting their information from the forums. Right. Like Jesse LaFlair alone has probably provided more information for more parkour athletes than every parkour forum in history. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, I would not argue with that for sure. And, uh, you know, I think Jesse's, uh, pretty smart and pretty good uh technical thinker and you know has a lot to offer but he's not a coaching specialist he's a he's an athlete specialist right so so we face that that issue as a community right how do we create a better model where where we're promoting the best uh the best thinkers and getting them out to people so i'm I'm curious though like you said you, you have your programming written for you and it's written to be very specific to your needs as a parkour athlete uh, now, um, there's a warning to everyone before I even ask this question. That means that the program that you're doing would not necessarily be appropriate for anybody else who doesn't have the same 
lifestyle, training time, training history, body structure, (laughs) goals, et cetera. But um, with that caveat, I'm curious, what does your training as an elite parkour athlete look like? Um, How how much time is spent on skills? How do you account for that in your ancillary training? And then with with the side training, uh, what is it that you're focusing on? How much time, kind of volume, et cetera, are you putting into it? Yeah, uh, it's changed a lot over the last three years, which is also yeah. why it's been really helpful um, to just have it be this collaborative process. Doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, the pressure's not all on me. Um, two years ago, when I was living in the van, right before I moved out here to Denver, I was attempting a challenge at the spot in Tampa. So I don't know if you're familiar with the classic, like Tampa stride spot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I basically, there's four sets of these walls uh, and they're about 12 feet off the ground all together. They span probably about a hundred yards. Um, and two of the sets of walls are the big gap. So the big gap is like a 14 and a half foot running pre to a 12 and a half foot plyo out. Um, with a probably a one foot wall in the middle. Yeah. The small gap is like a six and a half foot stride to a 12 and a half foot second jump. Mm-hmm. And the last gap in the Tampa stride is the biggest one technic and the most technical. So it's a 14 and a half foot first jump and a 13 foot out with a slight drop uh, second jump to a rail. And so my goal basically was to link all four of the gaps and i had intended to 100 yard run yeah in 100 so you basically are running like yeah i think in between it's about 65 or 70 feet between each set and then you have like a four step run up once you get onto the block and then you're doing the the sequence of jumps and then hopping down 70 foot run etc etc so um for that initially it was just developing the power and the kind of power endurance to uh, cover the ground and then maintain the ability to, to kind of perform a really, really physically intense and kind of technically demanding jump at the end. Because even though it only takes you 22 seconds or something, by the time that you've done the third gap at that level of height with kind of the physical consequence, because they're not pleasant falls. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last one actually is the least pleasant if you bail it your option is kind of like to either catch in cat awkwardly on this rail or you're dropping to the ground and the ground has a handrail that cuts right in the middle. So you're basically going to probably fall onto your back on a handrail and just like Batman over Bane's knee uh, (laughs) on this rail. So a lot of the initial training then and what I'd kind of talked with Andres about was uh, to get some accountability and some knowledge to help me develop. The, the ability to do that physically and I got there um ended up putting probably a year of training into it went down to Florida in my van for three weeks uh there was a hurricane the first week second week a music festival got rescheduled because of the hurricane uh and then they took 10 days on top of the spot to do this music festival and so I went from having basically three weeks of attempts to uh two days (laughs) at the very tail end of it and um just kind of like dealt with a lot of stuff so yeah that was my my initial programming was specifically to attempt this really really outrageous challenge uh i spent about a year of my training 
almost exclusively focusing on that and drew a lot of inspiration from the climbing world where they're just working on these massive projects for months at a time. Yeah. And uh, that one was really, really regimented because I had such a specific goal. So I was doing two day like lifting and, and plyometric track and field training three days a week where I would be in Miami, probably do a, a plyometric session in the morning, kind of like sauna rehab in the afternoon and then generally do some kind of like explosive lifting session in the afternoon or evening uh, or some kind of like just cardio death endurance to to make sure that I was able to yeah hold up under the stress uh, and then I was training probably like technical parkour movements like three days a week so I'd have generally one or two full rest days one day where I would have a training session in the middle of my um or a parkour training session in the middle of my physical training. And then uh, generally one day where I was kind of just training parkour. Um, and when I had to move and kind of ran out of funds to continue pursuing that project, I sort of reassessed and took a break from it and went into a place where I, my goal was kind of just to heal a lot of old overuse injuries. Mm -hmm. So had a hip injury wrestling with Jeremy Sanders uh, <laughs> right before NAPC one year and, and uh, still not entirely sure what we did because got some x-rays done. They're inconclusive. They think it may have been like a subluxation of my left hip um, that then healed a little bit weird, but I had really minimal internal rotation on my left hip. Right. And I was just kind of, as I was getting a little bit older and training more intensely, everything was sort of moving down and upstream and, and affecting the way that I was transferring power and force, uh, causing some back injuries and things like that. So that still is a big part of my training is just kind of making sure that um, the injuries that I've accrued, that even though they're minor, uh, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm handling them and kind of just like re-educating my body on certain you know, yeah. avoidance patterns that I developed uh, when I wasn't addressing those issues. Uh, and so that's now still a major part of my training. And then a lot of it also is uh, just to not re-aggravate any of those issues when I'm training parkour pretty heavily. Uh, a lot of it is like unilateral. So I'd, I tend to do kind of one um, heavy sort of like banded day for a lot of just like different hip uh, strength and mobility stuff, uh, working on like just ankle and Achilles range of motion. Um, even, you know, like just like toe flexors, things like that, getting everything downstream really uh, lined up. And then I'll usually do two or three days of slightly more explosive lifting, depending on the season. Summer, I'm usually just doing three days of lifting uh, or mobility in general throughout the week. Winter, I usually do four or five uh, just because I'm not, not training parkour as consistently. And then like what the actual program looks like kind of just revolves around my training goals. So the last year I've just been enjoying parkour, haven't really had any specific goals. Um, so it's kind of been more maintenance and just general kind of maintaining the explosivity that I developed from the earlier programming uh, for the Tampa project. So yeah, like a lot of like partial minimal range of motion, like heavy step ups, Bulgarian split squats, um, different yeah kind of like different lunch work and some olympic lifting work as well which i just enjoy as its own pursuit uh <laughs> mm -hmm. as well not even not even necessarily for the games 
Um, do you use full, the full Olympic lifts or do you use uh, like hang cleans? Yeah. More? yeah, yeah. We, so I also in high school, before I even started parkour, I played baseball at a pretty high level and threw my back out pitching when I was a sophomore in high school. Okay. Um, I have never had MRIs done on it. Again, just kind of like American healthcare <laughs> mm-hmm. and financial, you know, benefit. Uh, the cost benefit analysis has always been in my brain to get it worked on at some point, but I've not gotten there yet. Um, so with any kind of like heavy pulling motion, it's really easy for my back to get aggravated. Uh, I think a lot of it just weird, you know, avoidance patterns that I developed and the way that I would load. And so we'll do a lot of uh, either like pause pulling or yeah, like, uh, like mid shin hang cleans, um, just different, different types of hang cleans and power cleans and power snatch. Um, And then usually I'll like test with full snatch and full clean and jerk um, just to kind of keep my technique sharp. And it's not sharp by any Olympic standards, but it's really, really fun. And that's also why I discourage people from following my programming is at a certain point, I also just really enjoy strength training. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are things that I do that I wouldn't recommend for somebody who does, like, I probably wouldn't recommend putting the time into getting good enough at Olympic lifting where it will like benefit you from a power perspective for most parkour athletes, unless they also just enjoy it and want to get stronger um kind of as its own pursuit but for me i I think it's it's really worth it and i enjoy it so so cc train three days a week in the summer yep four days a week in the winter when you train in the summer like um like how many sets are you doing like how many exercises how many sets um Uh, usually and then sessions um Generally, like I'll do one day, one day a week where it's kind of lighter circuit work. Uh, I also have asthma, sports asthma. So that's something that like, as I've gotten older, if I don't stay up on some kind of kind of cardio circuit work thing, I really, not only do I feel like I'm getting worse uh, in terms of my ability to, to kind of maintain, but it also just stresses me out because the feeling of not being able to breathe sucks. So generally one day a week in the summer uh, or winter will be like a shorter 40 minute, uh, like nasal breathing circuit where yeah, I'm just like focusing on getting a little bit more comfortable with, with my oxygen, uh, oxygen levels and, and breathing uh, two or three days a week, depending on the season, usually picking like one or two major lifts or muscle groups so um, let me see like today i think later on i've got a uh like a tempo deadlift and then i think i'm also doing either like pause cleans or uh some kind of like hang power clean variation uh and then i'll usually follow that up with um some kind of circuit around like a pulling or pushing movement so yeah like weighted chin uh chin ups on rings or something like that uh, and yeah that's generally kind of what it will be it's like one building one or two big movements in uh that are going to fatigue the nervous system a little bit more and then kind of making a either a circuit or uh just yeah like adding some auxiliary exercises 
based on the goals. Yeah, and so your auxiliary exercise is more single joint type things focused on on kind of maintaining health of structures that you're looking at. Is that mostly what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. Depending on like for me my, with my goals right now, since I'm doing so much training in the summer, mm -hmm. um, I yeah, we we tend to kind of keep it a little bit more like single joint, lighter weight stuff that is yeah, just kind of maintenance oriented. Cool. And then with your, your plyometric work, um, mm -hmm. how, how did you integrate plyometric work with, uh, with parkour? Yeah, that was really hard <laughs> to figure out finding that balance. Cause obviously so much parkour training is really plyometric. Yeah, you have um, high demands plyometrically yeah. in your sport. So it's very easy to overdose. Exactly. Um, I found actually a lot of my, plyometric training ended up becoming more technical track and field training. So just like improving my bound technique uh, for strides was really important. That's something that I think you were mentioning John Reynolds or maybe Brandon was on the podcast. Uh, the, the one that you did with Brandon Douglas. Yeah. Um, so John is a really, really beast athlete out here in Colorado. And he started parkour when he was a kid. He was like 13 or 14 then became a really elite triple jumper and long jumper in the state and was kind of like pre-Olympic uh, path. And I don't know if he is still on that or not, but he has set a ton of Colorado state records as a high schooler and college athlete, um, won awards as a collegiate athlete. And so he's somebody whose brain now I love to pick about just like stride technique because he's coming at it from – he learned to stride for bound in, you know, and, and doing all these kind of like basic triple jump movements. He learned all of that in parkour first and then had to kind of break through some of the same uh, technical barriers that I've had to work through. And that was kind of what I found to be most effective in my plyometric training was more fine tuning the technique because I was getting the volume that I needed plyometrically from most of my parkour training and then easily making up for it with like one session uh, where I was doing, you know, whatever kind of like depth drops or any like rebound work that I was doing. Um, and so that was kind of the balance that I ended up getting at when I was doing a lot of plyometric training uh, to help me avoid injury was finding that like fine tune the technique versus just working purely on, you know, how, quickly are you able to rebound and you know how bendy are you when you're absorbing what what are your muscles doing and kind of what muscle groups are you using or are you really taking advantage of just pure tendon <laughs> rebound to mm -hmm. to work on your strides um yeah you, find that you got better transfer from kind of track and field style strides to parkour or vice versa yeah i would say better it was, again like everything in parkour is so contextual it's like when you talk about yeah anything the way that you would stride or bound in track and field versus the way that you would rail stride in parkour you know you don't have the luxury of having perfect foot placement every time you do something in parkour so you know when you're rail striding obviously you have to find the balance between reacting quickly on the ground to preserve as much force as possible uh, going into your next jump versus getting enough leverage on the point of contact 
to efficiently transfer the momentum that you have. Um, so I think that having the background knowledge and learning a little bit more about uh, track and field technique was really helpful for non-technical parkour strides. But anytime you're adding like a really droppy stride where you then have to redirect, it's like, cool, now you're taking into account not only how reactive do I want to be on the ground, but also I know I need to go up and I don't need to go out. So I might bend a little bit more at the knee and kind of hinge a little bit and use more muscle there as opposed to, you know, just trying to tap purely into tendon rebound. Yeah. Um, or on like a rail stride where it's like you really are decelerating on the rail because you can't use the speed that you have anyway and then redirecting. Uh, so that kind of stuff, I think track and field did contribute for sure. Excuse me. Uh, did contribute for sure, but it's easy to go too far into one camp or the other. And um, I think just getting, having a good idea in parkour, getting more information from track and field and developing that background was probably the, the best balance for me. So one of my students, uh, Andrew Denhard, he, um, he started training with me when he was 11. Um, he's 22 now. When he was in high school, you know, he'd been playing football, but he got a concussion and his mom wanted him to, to skip out. And so we're like, well, you have this super high level of athleticism. Like maybe we can get a, a scholarship with it. So we went over to track and field and he became, uh, you know, he was, I think he was finished sixth in state in the 300 hurdles eventually his, his junior year. But then his, his sophomore year, he, or his, his senior year, he was overtrained. They, they really didn't understand how to train, train, um, unfortunately like he had a great coach outside of his high school but his high school coach was overtraining all the athletes and he had you know some injury history and it just just caught up to him unfortunately so I wasn't able to take advantage of it but what was interesting was when he came back to parkour after like a season of track and field he was so overpowered like he like he just couldn't calibrate the new power that he had like you know he'd take two steps and because his speed had increased so much like the amount of power that he put into the ground to take a, to do a stride. He was, he was scary to watch. It was like someone had taken, you know, like you put it, just put a much bigger engine in the same car and the, the computer didn't, didn't recognize the power versus what it used to be. So I've seen that like, we think that getting more power, getting more speed, getting all these things will just transfer right into sport, but without like regular exposure, it's actually, you know, potentially going to interrupt the way that you, uh, the way that you're integrating to the environment. Yeah. But, uh, that's a, that's kind of a tangent. Here's, here's one of my like pet theories. So I've been very interested in the constraint led approach to learning and ecological dynamics. And one of the kind of ideas behind that is that exposure to more variation in training creates a more robust movement problem solver. Mm -hmm. And my perception is that, if you look at parkour athletes, parkour, the progression of parkour athletes is a kind of, it's a kind of puzzle from a motor learning perspective because we're too good. That's my perspective, right? Like parkour has been around for, you know, 15 years outside of like England and France. Um, yeah. Let's say 15, 20 years internationally. Um, when, when I started training, if someone could do a good climb up, they were an absurdly, advanced athlete right right the first guys who did corkscrews were like legends and yeah. you know uh 
congratulations on your cork, by the way. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, so like I, I jumped a 14 foot gap back in 2007. Right. And that was, that was like ultimate status back then. Right. Like very, very few people are able to do that. I had a 13 foot wall run. Pretty sure that's still like (laughs) elite. Um, (laughs) I don't think that that wall run has, uh, Dude, that wall run has just stopped progressing. Everyone was into it. <laughs> and it's like nobody wants to work on it anymore. Yeah. Um, but uh, but anyways, uh, since then, you know, the level has just come up so fast, so far. And I, you know, with the acrobatics, it's pretty easy because I have a gymnastics background. So like I remember when Nate Weston, uh, as a former student, you know, I'm sure you know Nate, uh, did a triple back outside, you know, off of a metal bar, right? And he's landing on sand, but it's still like, it's not, it's not a perfect gymnastics bar. Um, and then Eric McMechan does triple back and, you know, Jerry Nahulu does a double double onto, you know, three quarter inch uh, horse stall matting at the NAPC. Like these are D level skills in gymnastics. Um, and like most, like, uh, uh, Nate has a kind of interesting background cause he was circus, he's training circus arts. And then he did a couple, uh, three years of gymnastics and then he, he went on to parkour. But a lot of these athletes who are doing these things have no formal acrobatics training. Right. Um, and essentially they're in the areas where you can directly compare them. They're not very far away from the best gymnasts in the world on those same areas right if you look at like we parkour athletes don't do release skills and catch the bar but we do do dismounts right we swing off the bars Mm -hmm. now some of the best parkour athletes can do dismounts that are as difficult as the dismounts being competed by the best gymnasts in the world or or very close Mm -hmm. right like there's a few gymnasts out there doing you know triple twisting double flyaways laid out and obviously that's more difficult but but, well, but we had the, the Swedish 15-year-old kid who just stomped a flyway double full in on hard ground. And he's, <laughs> I think 14 or 15. <laughs> Crazy. Which is insane. Yeah. Yeah. So these kids have been learning, you know, so the, the, the gymnastics comparison, you're looking at a pool of athletes who started training usually at between four and six years old, who started training 30 to 40 hours a week when they're 10, right? <laughs> 11 years old, who've had coaches the entire time. And then you've got some kid like Jared Nahulu. I don't know when he started training, but maybe like nine, 10 years old, right? Mostly trained himself in open gyms. And now he's Mm -hmm. throwing the same level of tricks. Um, And I have, I'm not sure, it's harder to tell how jumps in parkour compare to jumps in track and field. But my impression is that now we're looking at like, It's, it's, it's almost comparable, not comparable, but it's almost comparable, maybe 80%, 85% of what these elite athletes are doing. Um, and so I think that's a puzzle, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that what it indicates is that self-organization of an athlete through experience of flow state and you know, self-directed intrinsic motivation and a high variability of training environment results in an extremely robust athletic development. That's my theory. And I think that in the way that I've developed development with play, the idea is how do we harness those underlying potentials as much as possible and not get in their way, 
right? I think that a lot of coaching, we really underestimate how, how much coaching can actually interfere with athletes' athletic progression. So the, the reason I want to bring that up with you is, you, you know, you're one of the, the biggest jumpers in the parkour community. You train with Dylan Baker, you train with these guys. Like how, how comparable do you think the, the jumping performance is at this stage? Like my, my speculation is the best parkour, uh, parkour athletes could probably do running gaps of about 20 feet without a precise landing, given mm -hmm. a full run up, they could jump between two, you know, structures that are 20 feet apart if it's level. Yeah. And if you account for the fact that, uh, a track and field athlete gets to land on their butt um, that you could, that that's getting to maybe a 23 foot track and field jump. And then consider the fact that track and field athletes are running from 60 meters. And how often do you ever run more than seven steps into a run up? For sure. And with like spikes that have been, <laughs> you know, developed and on a, on a surface that's got great reactivity versus yeah. yeah maybe we're running with shoes that are the foam is, taking away like we're adding milliseconds of ground contact time just because mm -hmm. it's compressing. Um, I think it's, it's really interesting to think about. Uh, John actually is, I think for me, the easiest comparison because he's somebody who is at an elite level, uh, at least nationally in track and field. And so he did a stride challenge at Cherry Creek, which is here in Denver. And it's like, I think the jumps are maybe, 12 feet and there's something like uh, it's like 11 or 12 consecutive 12 and 12 or 12 and a half foot strides uh and he made it look so casual on instagram posted it up and i just found out that he switch strode it so he basically like you know oh, one leg, one leg hopped through the entire thing uh i went there the other day and tried it pretty casually and was able to get about halfway mm -hmm. and that's also a type of skill that like he as a triple jumper is doing a lot of consecutive bound training where yeah. they're doing nine or 10 in a row. Uh, whereas in parkour, it's like generally there's no reason for you to do more than two or three strides in a row. Yeah. Um, so that was like a pretty good wake up call because I've trained with, like you said, I've trained with Phil, I've trained with like Pedro Sagato, Joseph mm -hmm. Henderson, Brody Pawson, a lot of these people who are in really, really athletic. Uh, and I kind of know that, for consecutive strides, I'm at a good level in the international community. Uh, and it was really cool to see how easy uh, John did it. And since then, I've kind of picked his brain about where he saw my technique fall apart in terms of just maintaining speed and preserving force throughout that. Um, so I think in certain areas like that, parkour athletes still have a long way to go and can learn a lot from track and field. Um, but on a sport specific level, again, it's like the incentive for us isn't really there because it doesn't matter <laughs> for us, you know, to do 12 consecutive big so strides like that. Let me, um, let me, let me switch the question up for a second. Cause I, I think yeah. you look at it from a, from a parkour athletes perspective, like where can I go and source information that will help me improve? Yeah. 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 Right. The perspective I'm looking at it from is more of the perspective of, uh, what does this tell us about how we prepare athletes in general better? And does parkour actually contain, contain insights into athlete preparation that track and field should be paying attention to and football should be paying attention to? So yes. for years, yeah. I've asked the question, like if you took the best at park, uh, gymnast in the world, 
and you prepare them to for parkour for a year and you took the best parkour athlete in the world and you prepare them for gymnastics for a year which would be more competitive and i always felt well, for years it was like well obviously the gymnasts right like koei Chimura would just smash us um, but i don't feel like that anymore i feel like that you could take a nate weston and turn and have a a national level high bar and floor specialist pretty fast um, yeah. and that getting uh, that getting a elite level uh, Kohei Uchimura type to do a a front flip or a, you know a side flip to a rail uh, yeah is is comparably difficult to trying to turn a parkour athlete into a pommel horse artist which is impossible basically right if you didn't start that when yeah. you when you were ten you're you're done um, yeah. but it, but it's comparable and I feel the same way about track and field like I think I could be wrong about this because like you said, you've been training with Brody and Pedro and Joseph and I'm just watching their videos. I haven't had a chance to train with those guys. But my feeling is if you took those guys and you had them train as track and field athletes for a year, you'd have a national level long jumper. You'd have someone who could pop a 26 for a long jump. Yeah, I, I definitely agree uh, to an extent. I think the only limiting factor in parkour still is the the pool that we're drawing from in terms of athletes. I mean, a lot of, you know, there are people so Hendo is somebody who's incredible. I think if you look at speed athletes in particular, yeah. that's where the most potential lies because in a sport like track and field or in, in athletics in general, your engine is going to determine a lot of kind of the output. And if you're really, really fast off the bat and you're really fast twitch, somebody like Hendo and Pedro Salgado, they're going to be for sure able to be competitive. I would say, uh, in like long jump or triple jump. Um, I think that parkour in general, if you take somebody and you train them, like you're saying in track and field where you're going from this kind of general skill set to, to a more specific skill set, I think the carryover is going to be much better in that direction uh, than trying to take a track and field athlete and be like, okay, you're used to like having this perfect run up. <laughs> now we're going to have you run on a two foot wall, 12 feet off the ground jump off of a rail at an angle with a three foot drop and, you know, like land at an angle where you have to then like rebound with control. There are just so many variables. Uh, and I think that that's like for sure where when jumping, if you consider jumping kind of as a fundamental human movement pattern and not a specific skill in the sense that it is in track and field where you're moving. Mm -hmm. in one direction you have the exact same approach every time you're able to just kind of hone in on that one pattern um i mean parkour athletes i can't i just don't imagine there's anybody that's that's able to compete uh in terms of variability because that's that's one of the, the things that as a sport i see parkour has really progressed yeah um in a way that you know no there's no other sport or discipline that i can think of where you have athletes taking so many factors into account on a fundamental kind of human movement that hadn't been explored in that direction before. Involvement well, plays the next level, but yeah. talent pool so far. But I mean, we're adding things like chasing each other, dodging, getting tackled, you know, yeah. the liveness, all the uh, change, of, change of direction, having to deal with reactive challenges, which is something that parkour really lacks. Um, but, uh, you know, CrossFit back in the day had this, boast right right we can do what you do almost as well as you um we can do uh you can't do what we do at all and what neither of us do we do better than you and 
that was the idea of like what the ultimate training program achieves for you. And I don't think that CrossFit actually fulfills that promise particularly well. Um, I think parkour is probably the best widely done thing that delivers something like that. Um, and yeah. what we're trying to do with Evolve Move Play is essentially hybridize that with the other ones that we think are the, the most rich, which would be MMA, uh, capoeira, um, and, uh, and some kind of team sport element actually, because when you play team sport, there's so much that is involved in your reactive ability and your ability to move and coordinate with multiple people. And if you have the ability to throw, catch, hit, avoid, um, then you're going to be able to adapt to sort of any kind of physical task. Um, so, so that's, and I, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really massive thing for years. People have thought like the base of building an athlete should be gymnastics and track and field, or you just specialize them as early as possible in their own sport. And I think that what we're seeing with the growth of, of like flow sports and kind of mixed modality sports and high variability sports is that we actually have a much better model for how to build athleticism as a general attribute that's going to be robust to different types of environments that you could uh, kind of bring those people into. So curious yeah. what your, your thoughts are on that. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think that as always kind of the limiting factor is how open your community is um, to exploring that. And I think evolve move play is a great example of both like the promise and the problems of that idea in the sense that it's got all of this amazing promise. Um, but it's also like parkour was 20 years ago. You have the issue of this kind of like dwindling pool as people self-select out of wanting to, um, I guess, like buy into that as an idea. And that people are self-selecting out. It's just lack of awareness, right? The, the lack problem of awareness. We had in 20 years ago wasn't that everyone had seen it and decided, well, that's just too hard. Sure. <laughs> it was yeah. that knew what the hell it was. For sure, for sure. Um, and I think now, like, you, there are a lot of people in parkour that are interested in expanding their movement skill set. Uh, I think it's also because it's a young demo, generally. Yeah. Um, you know, people are, like, so enamored with power and just making their, whatever their mark is in this kind of, like, obvious performance-oriented way that as they get a little bit older and more mature in their approach to training, um, those, I think, that, like, evolve move play and similar kind of approaches will will definitely continue to grow. Um, but I, I for sure agree. I'm glad that you mentioned team sports. Um, I think that like ball sports, uh, yeah. especially are really underrated by movement. Movement people are, are out to lunch when it comes to ball sports. <laughs> yeah. So I grew up, like, like I said, playing baseball and, you know, I remember having a conversation with Dylan like four or five years ago and we were talking about like, well, what really is the difference for your brain, if somebody is like throwing a ball at you and you have to deflect it with your foot and you're sitting still versus, you know, you've put yourself in this position where you're hurtling through the air, you realize you screwed up, your trajectory's off, and now you have to adapt to an obstacle that's coming at you quickly. Like you can kind of flip certain approaches in your head. And uh, I think there can be carryover when it's done intelligently. Um, like from things like ball sports, that would be really helpful for parkour athletes. And I've played around a little bit in my training with that. Um, and then there's also like the gimmicky one where it's just like, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure you can, you can think of plenty of examples of, of gimmicky exercises that coaches come up with to, 
bouncing balls. Like, yeah, there's there's plenty, and you know, it's it's as coaches we get really excited when we have new ideas, and we don't necessarily always think about is that the best use of our students' time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, there's a paper by Keith Davids and a number of other authors called Parkour as a Donor Sport to Team Sports. In particular, they look at soccer. But the idea is that um, that there is a, a particular perceptual variable that you attune to that looks at um, how you perceive gaps closing, right? And the, the way that you perceive a gap closing when you're jumping in parkour actually has a degree of transfer to seeing like the gap closing that you can run through to score in a soccer game um, or how fast the ball is approaching you on the horizon. Um, Franz Bosch's work uh, talks about this idea that essentially what the nervous system wants is to be able to adopt a solution to motor control that is going to be stable across as many different problem sets as possible. So when you expose the nervous system to variation, what you do is you help it attune to the, the motor control variables that are invariant across as many movement situations as possible. So if you imagine that like there's a list of, there's like 10 things that, that will help you control a jump in parkour. And then there's yeah. 10 things that will help you control going up for a dunk in, uh, in, in basketball and 10 things that will help you like go through the line in, in uh, you know, as a running back in football. Um, an athlete who notices that two out of those 10 things are consistent across all three things and their nervous system becomes attuned to that now has a higher order level of control. They know what to pay attention to that's likely to occur in a broader set of new novel circumstances. Yeah, um, I think really another kind of similar uh, similar concept in a way that I know a couple people, uh, I, I kind of, again, got this talking with Dylan and I think we were the first people I was aware of in parkour and I'm, I'm, we're not, I claim no originality for this, but you know, when you're talking about the way that people approach mental challenges in parkour and you're breaking it down, um, I just have also settled on kind of explaining it as this data processing algorithm where when you are exposing yourself to a variety of mental challenges, your body and your brain are constantly collecting information, feedback, and whenever you're approached with a novel challenge, especially if it's something that's scary, right, your brain is going to do a quick search and try and find something similar to compare it to. The closer the comparison is, the more confidence you're probably going to be able to to produce when it comes to facing that new scenario, um, whether it's in parkour or whatever else. And the wider variation that you're feeding your brain, like the bigger the data set is essentially, the better the chances that when you come up to something new, you're going to comb through that data set and find a relatively solid comparison that you can now build this predictive model on and give yourself a little bit more confidence going forward. Um, I think that that is something that also happens in a lot of uh, combat sports that is the only kind of similarity I can think of in parkour. I guess like free solo climbing would be another one where actually all of the major flow sports, snowboarding. Yeah. Yeah. Like parkour and the other flow sports to me are, are really basically the same thing in a way, because all of them are about exposing yourself to variable terrain and doing progressively more interesting, complex, faster, more difficult movements. Um, Even whitewater kayaking, the terrain's variable and the implement is variable. 
parkour is kind of the base. It's the lightest yeah. to develop, but it's just you and the environment. Yeah. So and I think every kayaking, it's like you see an eddy that looks a certain way, and you're like, okay, I've I've seen this before. I know how to navigate around this type of. Yeah, that's a a good point for sure. Yeah. But yeah. So I, I um, I'm not sure if it's an algorithm or a heuristic. If it's training heuristics because mm -hmm. algorithms means there's a precise, correct solution. Yeah. Whereas a heuristic means that there's a probable solution. And I think most motor control is heuristic, non-algorithmic, with this kind of a uh, somewhat tangential point. So we've been on the call for a long time. One thing that um, I wanted to talk, like a couple things that I wanted to just get your, your take on uh, was you talked about the, very early on we talked about the, the American style versus the European style and how those developed over time. And one aspect of that was the European style was more technical. It was oriented towards the development of techniques rather than say physical attributes, but also that it was philosophical. And I know in the, when we first started chatting before we scheduled this interview, one of the things that you have become interested in is the idea of the hero's journey. So I'm curious what your thinking is about, um, about the philosophy within parkour and how, how you see what it was in the beginning what it means to you now and how, what is that? What does the hero's journey have to do with that? Yeah, man. Um, I really think it's, it's like almost foundational for me in, I think part of parkour's charm to me when I started was that like you said, it kind of stripped away a lot of the aesthetic elements of sport. Um, you have all these kind of like trappings that are hiding this base of like, conflict and and sort of like self-assessment and self-development and when I saw parkour it was this really raw thing where you're confronting your own inability or ability in the context of the physical environment um, and I think that that was pretty overtly emphasized by the first generation of practitioners um, I think that the Yamakaze, their sort of personal journey of how they created parkour collectively and where they were coming from as teenagers in a not great suburb of Paris led them to think a lot about the emotional sort of side effects of their training. Uh, and I think that as parkour maybe diffused into a wider group of practitioners who are coming from all these different places there were commonalities that we all adopted but uh i think from probably there was some meaning you know that got lost uh along the way as it got codified a little bit more and and turned in a little bit more into kind of a performance sport um so i think yeah, I don't know. I have a, I have really intense feelings about it because for me, one thing I really enjoyed about your podcast uh, when I started listening to it is the general emphasis on how your training affects your your journey, your personal journey, and the way that you interact with your community and the people around you. Um, because that was for me as well when I picked up on parkour, this fundamental aspect of it is like, what are you going to do with the skill set that you develop, and that has sort of fallen a little bit by the wayside uh, in the past couple of years. So I guess the TLDR is like, I think it's incredibly important for me, parkour training and the way that I have approached 
problem solving throughout my life, uh, they've become totally intertwined. I don't know what my personal journey would look like without parkour at this point, um, just because it's become such an inherent part of the way that I assess the world and kind of my role in it. And I also really think it's valuable, um, no matter who you are, but uh, I mean, for me, it was like an incredibly privileged young white dude in a suburb in New York. And that's, uh, it was one of the only ways that I think I would have been able to learn the lessons that I did learn about, you know, assessing myself, kind of developing emotionally, finding common ground between people who are incredibly different from me, um, just in the way that they were raised, the way that they thought, the way that they approached problems. And through parkour training, it was really just such a great way of um, exposing myself to all those different things and developing. Yeah. Did you, did you see the talk I did with, uh, with, um, with John Verveke about parkour as a, as a kind of liminal space between subcultures and a bridge for, for people? I don't know if I got to that one. Okay. I, I've listened to at least a few of them, but yeah, yeah I don't know. I might, you might find that one interesting. That's like the fourth of our conversations. Most recent one or? It's the second and most recent one. Um, gotcha. So one thing that I think is like a under, well, first of all, actually, let's back up a second. How many young parkour athletes, right? If you're, say the median parkour athlete is probably like 15 years old, right? How many of those athletes do you think even recognize the name Laurent Pimontesi or Shao Beldin or anyone other than David Bell or even David Bell. Yeah. Yeah. Probably a, a very small percentage. <laughs> How much do you think the lack of that story is robbing kind of some of the potential for meaning development through what we're pursuing? I mean, it's a, it's a weird thing because like traditional martial arts, you know, or even I feel like like skateboarders know who Tony Hawk is. Yeah. I know who Rodney Mullen is like fame. Fame has kind of come and gone so much quicker for our community. It feels like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I definitely think there is something missing. Uh, reading Julie's book, breaking the jump. Mm -hmm. um, even though from the various conversations that I've had with the founders and some of the original members, um, there may be like, some kind of liberties that she took with the story there. I think that the overall sort of like thematic elements of that story are incredibly important to anyone who does parkour. Um, and I think it, it's really powerful. Um, but I do think one interesting thing that might be a result of us kind of not ever settling into that, the founder's myth is that it has given our sport maybe more flexibility. Um, to react to circumstances as things change. I think that there can be a positive aspect of that. Um, yeah. You know, the fact that our founders are still alive and active in the community, but we don't have this hero worship of them does mean that when you have a situation like FIG, it's not like there's not this, this group of Illuminati practitioners at the top that are deciding the fate of the sport for everybody. It, mm -hmm it is very collaborative. Um, so I, I think you miss out on some meaning, but maybe you gain more flexibility in terms of how you're reacting to the world around you. I think that adoption of intelligence, strength and conditioning, for instance, was 
was really retarded in the communities that had uh, a really strong sense of this is the tradition, there's a way it should be done. Absolutely, yeah. So my next question about that is, uh, part of the story that I think is not told nearly enough is that parkour started with basically, you know, immigrant kids, visible minorities in para, in in the Banlus, which is essentially the the ghettos. They're just on the outside instead of the inside of the cities mm-hmm. of Paris. And they were really, in some sense, escaping from potentially pretty dangerous paths through this, this thing. But then it spreads to the rest of the world through the internet and is its earliest adopters are geeky, you know, um, yeah, geeky, affluent, middle-class white and Asian kids, right? Mostly white kids. Um, I'm curious how, how you think that shifted the culture um, and, you know, what might have been lost because that happens to be the, the way that it was propagated. Yeah, I mean, I think that the first part is, uh, and I know this is something that you've brought up, the kind of combative nature that was embedded in parkour training early on. Yeah. where you know they're constantly like wrestling and fighting and throwing rocks at each other uh all those things to kind of prove and test their manliness and their fitness to each other uh and develop that that tribe that was preserved a little bit but it was definitely i think transformed um and you know i think that was really the the initially the biggest loss um because for me you know, I know I found out about parkour on a library computer because that was the kind of kid that I was who would go to the library and look for weird stuff online. And it's like, I'm as a 14 year old, I'm not going to be maybe inherently as receptive to the potentially violent side of parkour training as I am to the side that's like, be strong, be useful, you know, find a place in this crazy world and learn how to change the way that you see the environment around you. Like those kinds of messages were a little bit more digestible for me, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are a lot of, a lot of parkour practitioners, maybe in that second generation uh, in particular, who, who kind of settled into that. Um, and I also think that as in like a lot of sports, you know, the, the shift toward performance, um, and really like starting to gauge training more based on challenges and what, what challenges you'd accomplished and how far you could jump, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that's, that's kind of a, almost like a bastardization of the same instinct, right? You're like looking for that same uh, like conflict resolution. It's just, instead of kind of finding it in your tribe and in your fellow practitioners, it's like, how can I, throw myself up against this wall. And I think skateboarding is like another example where you have this really combative element embedded in skating that isn't necessarily like uh, demonstrated through fighting prowess, but it's demonstrated in like how willing are you to throw yourself down this eight set and, and eat it super hard a bunch of times. And emotionally you're going through similar things, um, but yeah, you're not learning. This, the exact same lessons physically or, or emotionally. I had a conversation with Paul Vanderclay, who's a, he's a Christian Reformed Church pastor who comments a lot on like Jordan Peterson stuff and John Verbeke stuff. And we were talking about the idea that like we have these challenges around how to be a better person, be a more loving person, et cetera. But 
without a grounding in the body, there's, it's hard to develop it, right? Like for me, I think it's really under, it's underemphasized in our culture that, 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 that virtue is embodied, right? Whatever virtue you want. And, and in some sense, it's like, you have to have strength, right? If you want to be able to, to do anything difficult, you need strength and you need courage. Um, and fundamentally, I think we seek these things as a place to gain those. But when we look at, you know, can you do this eight set? Um, and that's, that's a, that's a marker of courage or a marker of strength. Mm -hmm. But we kind of get stuck on the finger pointing at the moon. Right. Uh, but you know, I had this conversation with Stefan Bigru and, you know, I, like when I was at Parkour Visions, I, well, I wasn't satisfied with the, the, the definition, the, the Wikipedia definition of parkour, right? I don't know how that became the widely accepted definition of parkour, right? It's moving from A to B in the most efficient pa uh, manner possible. It's like Random uh, things David Bell said in an interview in yeah. 2001. <laughs> Not even one of his better interviews, but yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's just like, that doesn't represent what we do at all. Yeah. So, you know, I was trying to, to, to take the ideas that he had put into like the Pawa.ru documents and some of that stuff that I just felt like he, they weren't, he, you know, he hadn't articulated it fully, but I needed a working definition that actually worked and was coherent. So I came up with this idea that parkour was the discipline of developing the ability to overcome obstacles effectively, right? There's an obstacle in front of you, you can overcome it. Um, and then over time, I, I added this addendum to that, which was, and of developing the self through overcoming obstacles. Starting to, but after reading Julie's book and you know through various things that I'd heard even before that, I was like, I think that that the original orientation was the developing the self through overcoming obstacles, and yeah. the effectiveness portion of it was uh, was far less the the actual emphasis. Yeah, for and sure. As, you know, as it came to the United States, and we tried to 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 make it very rational and scientific and have competitions. In some sense, we're, we're focusing on the me mechanics of the sport as opposed to the, the spirit. Yeah. Yeah. And you know that I don't think that it's like the constant balance between, you know, commercialization and quantifying all these things versus kind of embracing the, the fuzzy boundaries that the actual thing might encompass. Um, I, I agree. I remember sitting, when Sebastian Foucault was touring, we went and grabbed pizza after one of his events in New York. And I was just like, all right, Seb, I'm here with you. I don't know when I'm going to get the chance to just sit down with you for two hours uninterrupted again. Mm -hmm. I want you to tell me everything about what it was like to start parkour because what an opportunity this is, you know, to get to sit down with one of the original people who started this sport that we do. And it was fascinating because it really his perspective on it as somebody who's very good friends with David kind of went through a falling apart and then now is reconnected and, and is good friends with David again, but also has maintained a friendship um, with, you know, the core Yamak group. It was really interesting to hear his take on like David's training, which essentially was parkour was his sort of like therapy for dealing with the issues that he had with his father. Um, and the movement was just an expression of what was happening internally, trying to kind of come to grips with his value and his worth and his kind of, yeah, just the, the different issues that he had. Um, 
And that seemed like a common ground for a lot of them. And I've never gotten to speak in person with William. Um, but, you know, listening to his interviews and Generation Yamakasi and other things, I think he was one of the first to really articulate that and at an insanely young age as well, um, which is incredibly impressive. But, you know, he really seems to kind of have realized that early on that that the the culture and the spirit were the primary driving force for the training. Um, I think that a cool thing as our community matures is that you're getting some of the higher profile athletes who now are starting to settle into having families and, and kind of calming down from the adrenaline fueled, maybe like performance oriented side of training. And hopefully as that happens more, again, kind of talking about the, uh, the funnel and who people look up to for their information, you know, hopefully as, as athletes, like I think Callum is one of, one of that I think of immediately with his Callum tips, which are these great like tongue in cheek, pieces of advice or commentary on on the state of the parkour community but a lot of them are really oriented toward these people who look at parkour as this purely physical thing that they're going to retire from when they're 28 and then they're going to go pick up their job as an actuary or something like that and and I think he's done a really great job of being someone who has performed I mean his his jump at Chungking Mansions in Roof Culture Asia I think is one of the most impressive feats that anyone in parkour has ever done like a 17 and a half foot level running pre 45 stories high with a technical approach that's like so mind-blowing but um you know he's developed that following because he's a proficient athlete and i'm i really enjoy seeing him kind of widen uh widen his base and, and hopefully kind of expose some of those people who maybe wouldn't be getting it from Evolve Move Play or from reading Julie Angel's book because they're just looking to see crazy shenanigans. Uh, and then Calm's kind of like slipping it in there. And I don't think he's going to be the last one. I think that, you know, as a lot of athletes mature and, and kind of reach a different perspective in their training, hopefully that, that kind of gets spread back out, you know. I'm I'm hoping we have an hourglass and not just like a straight funnel where we <laughs> yeah, yeah. distill everything that was this beautiful, you know, sport mm-hmm. and culture into this sort of like trickle of really ridiculously intense uh performance oriented Instagram videos. But maybe those will then start to spread out and kind of collect into this uh re-emphasis on the hero's journey and the culture and the kind of emotional growth that can happen through this type of training. I actually think that, that what we're doing is a, is a good start, right? I think that, uh, that, you know, uh, I have this idea that there's an ecology that we are all in, right? And that ecology allows, gives certain things leverage to spread. And so, you know, um, skateboarding arises basically with the VHS tape and the, and the, and the like magazine. Right. And then, and that it's, it's kind of slow skateboarding, snowboarding, they all kind of are part of the same VHS magazine culture. And then there's a a generation of, of sports that basically do what those sports did in 40 years and 10 years, um, through YouTube and web forums. But now YouTube and web forums are not really friendly to us so much anymore. Um, there's a few people who are successful, but we're, we're having to adapt. Um, we haven't figured it out yet. 
if we're going to figure it out. But it, fe it feels like to me, you know, the podcast and the online course, it's like, like imagine if when we had started parkour, you could have just like had a group call with David, you know, once a month and he would have had a bunch of film tutorials for you to buy for, you know, hundred bucks online or something. Um, mm -hmm. That's the type of thing that athlete, that the best thinkers in the community can now do. Um, yeah. So I think we're, we're just starting to learn how to leverage that. Um, but uh, I'm hopeful that, that there'll be a kind of a new renaissance within this as we learn these new tools and how to leverage them. Yeah. It's funny, Callum's uh, one of the first parkour athletes I've had on the podcast as well. Cause oh, really? he's, uh, he's, he's starting to be very articulate in, in being able to express that, you know, uh, I'm interested in, there's certain things that only people who've kind of been at the top of the sport ha can experience. Um, but a lot of them don't have the ability to articulate what that is and bring out, bring the lesson out. So it's funny that you bring him up as well. Um, uh, and then maybe one last thought here, which is, uh, Everyone's got to go pick up that book if they're interested in this, uh, Julie Angel's book. And there's a moment where Williams is 11 years old where he, he does a jump and you know it's so meaningful to him. And he brings his friend there and his friend does the jump and he can see that it doesn't, doesn't mean anything to him. And he realizes that what he's after is the meaning. And I essentially, I think that that's what, what's at the root of what I'm doing. It sounds like that's what's the root of what you're excited about and discovering in the discipline now. And, uh, and Williams is really kind of quiet and doesn't write, write a lot or, or put out a lot, just as an amazing mover and, you know, doing his own thing out there. Um, he's kind of like the first person who made this realization. So uh, it's, yeah. I think it's important for people to recognize that there are, there's some sages in the history of this parkour thing um, yeah. and getting some insight from them, even if they're not everything about their methods is perfect. Um, the more that we can reconnect and get those insights shared, uh, I think the better we grow as a community. Yeah, absolutely. And I would also say that, you know, one thing that I learned from writing, writing my book is that when you, it's easy to be discouraged when you're looking back at the history through this, you know, the, the rose tinted glasses and saying, wow, it was so great. You know, they had this amazing emotional realization about parkour, but then you fast forward and realize that they've all since gone through their own personal difficulties and difficulties as a group and difficulties commercializing and capitalizing on this thing and finding that balance. And it's not a finished story, right? It's this open-ended story and continuing to, I think, invest in learning about what's happened since then is just as important. Um, and uh, finding that balance, you know, like we were saying, it's, there's a flexibility that we have um, because we're privileged enough to live in a time where the people who created this thing that we love still practice it and are still available to kind of continue to redefine it with the practitioners now who are at this elite level. Uh, and that's always been one of my goals too, is, you know, to look at the, the lessons that can be learned in that interim and see where the things have happened that cued the parts of parkour that have developed that maybe we're not in love with. And, and try and kind of maybe nip those buds or prune, <laughs> prune those buds in the future. Uh, and then hopefully, yeah, continue to kind of reach back into our past and, and keep connecting and working with the Yamak and, and all those amazing, amazing old school guys. Yeah. 
I think that's a good place to end for today. We got about 20 minutes over time. So, but uh, obviously it was a great chat. Uh, clearly we had a lot yeah. to say to each other. So I'll have to do it again. For sure. Talk soon. Yeah. See you. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.